Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event in conjunction with the Lundberg Institute. This is the 11th annual Lundberg Institute lecture at the Commonwealth Club. We started this in 2011 and have done one every year since. Um, Now, this is our second one as part of the pandemic, and we're focused on COVID again, as usual. Um, But um, we've been doing this uh, with doctors uh, in the field, in their expertise, that are brought to the table by Dr. George Lundberg, uh, the founder of the Lundberg Institute. Uh, Dr. Lundberg is very well known in the field. He was the editor of JAMA. He has done many, many things in the uh, medical profession that have brought the ideas of how to go about doing the practice of medicine. Um, And he's here for the 11th annual Lundberg Institute lecture. Thank you very much, George. Um, Thank you very much, Mr. Hammond, and thank you, Commonwealth Club, for again providing the venue for this, what's become an annual presentation. On behalf of the Board of Directors of the Lundberg Institute, hello and welcome. I'm the chair and the president of the Lundberg Institute, which is a 501c3 charity dedicated to promoting patient-centered medicine. Its credo is one patient, one physician, one moment, one decision. Let it be a shared decision informed by the best evidence and considering cost. TLI educates by annual lectures and by an active website that also publishes the blog called Curious Dr. George. This program is the 11th annual lecture, and our two illustrious speakers today are Dr. Lena Wynn, a physician trained in emergency medicine who became famous as Commissioner of Health for the City of Baltimore. Her career has expanded to include being a medical analyst for CNN and a repeating columnist for the Washington Post and most recently book author of Lifelines, I'll hold up here to show, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for Public Health. And Dr. Susan Levenstein, a primary care internist trained in New York, who has practiced in Rome, Italy for more than 40 years. She writes what I consider to be the best COVID COVID blog called Stethoscope on Rome, and published a recent book called Dr. Ressa, an American Doctor in Rome, also available in audio by the author. I'm a pathologist originally, so I tend to see medicine and health through this simple prism of life and death. Almost two years into the COVID pandemic, how does COVID stack up against prior human plagues? Quite nicely, unfortunately. Yersinia pestis, a bacterium, produced three long plagues, Justinian, Constantinople, 541 CE, killed 30 to 50 million people in Asia, Africa, and the Middle East, as much as 50% of the world population at that time. 1300, same bug, the Black Death, killed 20 million Europeans, one quarter the population. It was stopped by isolation and quarantines. London, same bug. For 300 years, up to 1665, it was stopped by forced confinement, mandated confinement. It became endemic even today. 
The fourth plague, smallpox, endemic for centuries, brought to the Western Hemisphere in the 15th century, killed some 90% of indigenous people, like 10 million out of 11 million who lived in what's now Mexico. And it was ultimately stopped by vaccination. Then there was cholera, became epidemic in London in the 19th century, stopped by interdicting the flow of contaminated drinking water, a field which birthed public health as an entity. Now, just about 100 years ago, 1918-1920, H1N1 influenza killed, we don't know, 15 million, 100 million people. Nobody knows why it quit. AIDS. When I took JAMA in 1982, AIDS welcomed us, 1983. Death total worldwide, you forget about it, 30 million people probably, currently still killing about 600,000 people a year. It's been slowed by advanced scientific treatment and prevention. So here we come, SARS-CoV-2, late 2019, in the Wuhan province of China. As of today, at least 250 million cases, we don't know, but probably more in all countries. Death at least 5 million and counting. Worldwide, five surges over 20 months, each followed by a valley. Up it goes, down it goes, never down far enough. Currently plateauing, or more or less, but in the last couple of weeks, trending upwards globally at about 400,000 cases a day and 7,000 new deaths a day, which project even as a plateau to 2.5 million deaths per year. Until when? Caught in the labyrinth. Dr. Levenstein, your opening statement, one to two minutes. Dr. Lundberg, thank you so much for the kind words that you had to say and for the great honor of this invitation. As you said, I did my medical training in New York, New York City, and the rest of my story in quick nutshell, I passed my internal medicine boards in September 1978, and just a few days later, I was off to Rome with my first Italian husband. And here it took me 18 months to get licensed, then to realize with regret that I'd never be able to work in the National Health Service, and then to start up a private practice. I'm still seeing patients today. I have a very, very, very international clientele. I have treated a handful of outpatients with COVID-19, but my real pandemic connection is through writing my blog. As per the name, which, as you said, is Stethoscope on Rome, for several years it focused on the same U.S. versus Italy medical cultural issues that I wrote about in my memoir. But then two weeks after the first case of COVID-19 was diagnosed in northern Italy, I found myself on an airplane to California for what eventually became a three-month involuntary exile. When I was on the plane, I started writing a piece that I called Corona for the blog. And since then, I have dedicated the blog exclusively and, I'd say, obsessively to the pandemic. Thank you. Dr. Wen. opening statement. 
Wow. I mean, hard to follow that um, example by Dr. Levenstein. And um, just wanted to say, Dr. Lundberg, George, that it's a pleasure to join you um, and to join you all. Although I'm sorry that we are virtual for the time being, although given the topic of our conversation, perhaps understandable as to why. Um, look, I wanted to begin today by talking about what we have learned thus far in the pandemic, and I think in terms of threes. And so, you know, I, um, I think the main thing that we have seen is that it's unmasked underlying problems. As in, COVID did not create many of the issues that we're seeing, but it did unveil them, unmask them. And the three things that really stand out, one is health disparities. Clearly, disparities existed long before COVID, but COVID very much brought them out for everyone to see. And I think we've also seen very clearly how these disparities are not going to go away on their own, and in fact are further exacerbated. For example, when vaccines first became available, it was those who are privileged who had access to to the vaccines. And so we need to be really intentional about addressing them. The second that we have seen unmasked is the lack of investment in public health. There's a saying that public health saved your life today. You just don't know it. And that's because public health is about prevention. It literally is about something that didn't happen if you're successful in your work. But the problem is, if you are, if you can't see the work because you have prevented something from happening, public health usually becomes the first thing on the chopping block when it comes to budget time. And we've certainly seen this come back to to haunt us because of the um, because of the pandemic. And then the third thing that I'll highlight is the polarization in our country. Again, not something that COVID-19 caused, but I think we can see very clearly what's happened when something that's as basic as wearing masks or getting a life-saving vaccine is not just a political issue, it's become a partisan symbol and has really been placed in the middle of ideological culture wars. Now, I don't have a solution to this. I'm just naming the problem. But I do think that COVID has unmasked these problems for us to see. And I'm excited to for us to be talking more about this throughout our conversation. Well, thank you both. As the, you can all see, I have a script in front of me, and it's meant to guide us. The, our speakers have, are privy to what's on the script, which is largely a Q&A here that will take us in some kind of reasonable way, I hope, that is educating for all of our people. A lot of you are, uh, people watching are physicians. Many of you are not. Everybody's interested in COVID. You can't, but you can't uh, pick up a newspaper or turn on TV or anything without learning about it. So we learn something new every day. Unfortunately, a lot of what we learn every day is wrong. And the next day, we find out that maybe we shouldn't have learned that at all. So this is where we're going to go. <coughs> uh, we have a certain period of time. We have a lot of stuff. It's mostly going to be Q&A. And some of it will be directed specifically to individuals, or it may be directed to both of them. And whoever wants to answer, get with it. We're not... Uh, there's no timer here, and you don't get special prizes or special honorary if you come in and do it right. There are no honorary. <laughs> so here we go. COVID-19 is the name initially assigned to disease caused by the wild type of the virus that started there in Wuhan one way or another. We're going to not get into how it started. Then the alpha variant, obviously alpha, and but today let's mostly talk about the delta variant, which became and remains predominant. When an individual, vaccinated or unvaccinated, believes that they've been, quote, exposed, end quotes, 
to SARS-CoV-2, what should they do and when? Who wants that one? I can take that, as um, I think many of the questions regarding treatment, um, Dr. Levenstein, I think, is better suited for. But the questions on testing prevention, um, if you believe that you've been exposed, you should, first of all, um, make sure that you are separating from those in your, in your immediate circle, so in your immediate household, especially if they are unvaccinated themselves or if they are particularly vulnerable. And so if you, for example, live at home with unvaccinated children or an immunocompromised family member, really important that you separate yourself from them in that household, if at all possible. Now, if that exposure was just immediately, as in you went to a luncheon and then you came back from, from the luncheon and then somebody calls you and says, I am so sorry, I just I got my COVID test back and it's positive. There's no point to getting tested immediately because you're not going to have a positive test if your exposure was 20 minutes ago. Um, the, what I would recommend and what the CDC recommends is at least three days after that exposure, you should get tested. I actually recommend two, if that test is, if that test is positive, you obviously have COVID. But if you have if that test is negative at three days, I would recommend another test at the five-day mark. And in the meantime, if you are unvaccinated, you should be completely quarantining and not seeing other individuals. If you are vaccinated, stay away from vulnerable family members. But otherwise, according to the CDC, you are still able to go out in public as long as you're wearing a mask in public settings. Okay, well, that leads naturally to the next question, which is once a person who's symptomatic or asymptomatic but has been exposed and is interested and it chooses to be tested, should the specimen be a nasal swab or saliva, or does it matter? Well, the nasal swab, the, the PCR nasal swab is the best test that we have. It's not perfect. Even the PCR test misses about 10% of cases. But it's definitely much better than the antigen test, the superficial test, um, which misses up to 50% of cases. Um, both of those tests will give, if they're positive, they're really positive. Unfortunately, the salivary tests are not as good. The salivary tests are the ones that are done at home. Um, they do have a certain rate of false positives, so they're much more problematic and have to be confirmed necessarily. But by and large, in my opinion, the real role of antigen testing, of superficial swab testing, rapid tests, is in people who are asymptomatic. And, for example, they're being used now in Italy. In Italy now, everyone who wants to go to work in, in an office or in, in a workplace has to test, has to do an antigen test three times a week on their own nickel. There's and I think obviously this issue of sensitivity specificity and one test mm -hmm. may be sensitive enough, may not, may be specific enough, may not. Second test, when? Why? Which? Well, Different one? Mm, as these, this, I, I, I agree with Dr. Wen that the second, a second test, if, you, if there's a strong suspicion that you, have been, that you have been exposed, then you must do a second PCR test several days after the first one. But again, you know, the CDC, for example, recommends that after you get, I, mean, I just looked, at, looked at, the, at the site a couple of days ago, and it says that after you get a negative test, you can go out in the world again. And I think that this is a mistake because the negative test is still not 100%. So can I, can I add? If you test positive, what do you do? 
If you test positive, what do you do? You separate yourself. PCR, what do you do? You you separate yourself drastically from everybody around you. You make sure you have no contact with anyone. If you are within any range of the person who's going to be bringing you food in the room where you are isolating, um, then you have a mask on and the other person has a mask on. You have your own room. You have your own bathroom. And you certainly do not leave that. You do not leave that. You stay there. You are absolutely isolated. If and... We now know that retesting to see whether you're still infectious is not really extremely useful because people who are outpatients who aren't terribly sick with COVID stop being infectious after 10 days. Dr. Lundberg, may I add um, to what what Dr. Levenstein is saying about testing? You know, I I think one of the, um, if we go back to back in 2020, early 2020, the original sin, if you will, here in the U.S. was lack of testing. We just didn't know what we didn't know. Whenever one test was done, it was the canary in the coal mine because it meant that one that one positive test, there were so many other cases of community transmission we just didn't know. And especially at that time, we didn't know about asymptomatic transmission. And so there were all these cases of individuals who are asymptomatic who are spreading COVID. What I find very troublesome at that time, look, we didn't know. This is a, a new pandemic. Who, who would have known that it would be lasting to this time, that we'd be November of 2021, we'd still be talking about it. But what I find to be mind-blowing is that we haven't learned this lesson. In the U.S., we have not gotten to the point of where Italy and the U.K. and Germany and Singapore and Japan and so many other countries are in terms of having widely available rapid testing for the purposes that Dr. Levenstein just mentioned, which is what about um, people getting tested, kids getting tested before going to school, workers getting tested before going to work. It should become the norm that when families are getting together over Thanksgiving or whatever holiday, that every Everybody gets tested regardless of whether they are vaccinated. I mean, we should, and, and by the way, all this I'm referring to the rapid antigen test. I think part of the problem is we are letting perfect be the enemy of the good. I hear a lot of people saying, hey, these tests are not 100%, so let's not do them at all. But if you test 0% of people, you're going to get 0% back. I'd rather get a test that's 80%. And look, you might still be missing 20% of cases, but that's still better than not doing testing at all. We are so limited in this country when it comes to PCR tests, too. And so while I, of course, completely agree with what Dr. Levenstein said, that if you have an exposure, if you have symptoms, you should get a PCR test. I would also add to this conversation that if you cannot get one very quickly, um, and, and again, you know, I, I have two little kids at home, if it takes, you know, 24 hours to schedule a PCR test and then three days for those results to come back, and I really want to know for my family's sake, I would go ahead and get the rapid test. I would still get a PCR test to confirm what I'm able to, but get whatever test you have available. Don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. Comment. When I have people in this circumstance, in my my friends, my acquaintances, my patients, I tell them to get an antigen test every day and arrange the PCR as soon as they, you know, after, after five days or so. That's, that's the policy that I usually follow. But I can't believe it that in the United States, you still have to wait three days for a result. For Depends PCR. on the part of the country that, that you're in. Some places are same day, but there are some places that are, are, are not easy to get a test. Yeah, we've never had a national testing policy in the United States. Uh, my organization, uh, Pathology Organization, American Society for Clinical Pathology, tried to create, take the lead in developing a national 
testing policy. Rebuff never did happen. Anyway, let's move ahead. There's a lot of stuff to deal with here. Okay, let, let's say now you're, you're the patient or you're the physician and the patient is here, you, whichever one you wish, been vaccinated, not been vaccinated, positive tests, repeat positive tests, symptomatic, asymptomatic. When should a patient request or a physician administer convalescent serum or monoclonal antibody? Who should get those and when? Okay. I was some, one of the people who was very enthusiastic about convalescent serum, convalescent plasma, and extremely disappointed when I had to admit that it really doesn't do anything. Um, as far as the monoclonal antibodies is concerned, I don't think that there's any appropriate role for people who are asymptomatic, and it, it hasn't been examined in people who are asymptomatic, but in people who are who are mildly symptomatic and are at high risk for going downhill, either because of, of advanced age or because of having pre-existing conditions, they should try as soon as they can, ideally within, thir within three days of starting to be symptomatic, and get that um, monoclonal antibody. Can I add one more thing about um, the U.S. context of where we are? And again, depending on the part of the country that you're in and even the community that you're in, the availability of monoclonal antibodies and therefore the um, what who would qualify for it vary greatly. There are some places, parts of Florida, for example, that offer it widely, that advertise monoclonal antibodies to anyone, basically. There are other places where you have to meet very strict criteria. You have to have certain underlying conditions be a certain age, and still the access may be quite limited. So I think it, it varies a lot. Um, one thing I do want to add is that there are some proponents of monoclonal antibodies even for individuals who have no symptoms and, in fact, don't have COVID, as in people who are at high risk for exposure. Um, I was on a panel recently with Dr. Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA commissioner, who said that, you know, during the Delta surge, for example, why not in nursing homes give everyone in the nursing home, even if they're vaccinated, monoclonal antibody infusions every month as prophylaxis um, to prevent them from, from, getting, from, from getting COVID. That, by the way, is an FDA-authorized, it's under emergency use authorization for prophylaxis. So it is actually covered to, for, for someone to be, to, to, uh, to, to, to be doing that. This is madness. This is absolutely madness. I, I, th I, I thought it was covered for people who actually had been exposed, people who, have been ex who are household exposures or work Correct. exposures. I Correct. don't think, I haven't seen that it's covered simply as open-ended open prophylaxis to be given every month. I think it's under compassionate use. It is a, it is a known um, and approved, or I, I don't know what the terminology is, but it is being currently being used under compassionate use protocols. Okay. Again, if you were listening at the beginning of this thing, I, the, the Lundberg Institute has one of the elements that it wants doctors and patients to discuss before making a decision is cost. Now, the cost for vaccination to the patient is nothing. The cost for vaccination to the, the enterprise called the country in our healthcare system is a lot of money. But you cut it up by so many vaccinations, it's pretty inexpensive per vaccination. On the other hand, the charge to somebody for a monoclonal antibody is not small. Think about that. Does, do any of you know 
what what the reimbursement rate would be for monoclonal antibody now IV uh, does Medicare cover that? I don't know. I don't know. I know that the, that the, the government cover monoclonal antibody. The government pays one thousand two hundred fifty, as I understand it, for each infusion of a mono, of, of of Regeneron. They pay about double that for the GSK drug. I suppose it might be a little silly for somebody like me to be sitting here talking about what it costs to do stuff. On the other hand, this whole thing is very, very expensive. But let's move ahead to clinical things, not monetary things at the moment. Uh, Let's say the patient, the person has become a patient, has become not just exposed, but as a case, uh, Mm -hmm. tested positive, uh, has some symptoms, goes to the doctor, doctor says, well, I guess I better treat you with something or another. As an outpatient, you don't look very sick, and I don't, I'm certainly not going to put you in a hospital. Uh, and, uh, yeah, the, uh, the monoclonal antibody may be useful in some instances to prevent at that stage of the game, and frankly probably is. But there are a lot of other uh, things that are used by doctors and have been used ever since the beginning. A lot of them continue to do it. And I'm going to run through a series of drugs here that you've all heard about, all of you have. But uh, I want you to, very, we can deal with this quickly if it's easy. If you say, yeah, that should be used on outpatients, thumbs up. If both of you do thumbs up, we go to the next one. If both of you say, nah, thumbs down, we go to the next one. If you say, mm, I don't know, or I've got a comment, then we'll dwell on that one. Fair enough? Okay, thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs neutral, or a comment. Zithromax. Down. Zinc. Down and (laughs) neutral, okay? Hydroxychloroquine. Thumbs down. Hydroxychloroquine after priming with zinc. Both down. Okay, zinc, zinc, well, you know, all right, fair enough. Uh, Femotidine. Pepsid. At this stage, down, okay? Ivermectin. Down. Vitamin C. I like vitamin C. I take it myself. (laughs) But I wouldn't necessarily think it was going to do any good with that one. How about vitamin D? Okay, you're saying that. On the other hand, there are data, of course, there are data on all these things all over the place, and I'm asking you as experts to weigh in. But if I have a disagreement, I might bring up something on the vitamin D. There's a fair amount of correlation between low vitamin D levels and people who get COVID. Mm-hmm. Whether yep. they, then if you do an intervention with it, I don't know any data on that that, that apply. There are data, and it's negative. So if you're out in California today, you may not know this, but it's actually raining. Uh, Lena, are you are you in Baltimore, Maryland? I'm in Baltimore. Yes. Can okay. I and I can I just explain my my neutral vote? Mm-hmm. Because I, I, I put neutral for three things that actually have a lot in common with one another. I put neutral for zinc, vitamin C, and vitamin D because all the other things that we're talking about actually have a risk if you take them. As in, if you take ivermectin, there's a risk. You know, There's no benefit and there's a risk. Therefore, it's a net negative. 
there really isn't harm to taking zinc, vitamin C, and vitamin D. If somebody says, if a patient of mine really believes that they want, I mean, and I don't mean high doses of things, but if they just say, hey, I want to take a vitamin C pill, I have COVID, I would advise them, this will do nothing for you. But if they want to take it, I'm not going to spend my capital with them trying to dissuade them from taking vitamin C, vitamin D, or zinc. But I would spend a lot of time dis- dissuading them from taking hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin or something else on the list. That's why it was a thumbs neutral. It's not because I actually think there's evidence for it. It's rather that I wouldn't try to talk my patient out of taking these things. Yeah, anytime you give a patient a drug, the it may do it may do good, it may do harm, it may do nothing, or they may think it's going to do something. In which case, sometimes it does, even if it doesn't act, or they think they've done the right thing and they haven't. It's a mess. Anyway, I, it's very difficult. Every one of these drugs, we could have a serious conversation and say, well, what did that article say? What did that article say? But this is a lot of stuff. And you're doing fine so far. How about doxycycline? Yeah, why would anybody administer? Why would anybody do that? Why would you give it? Because you don't know it's COVID. You think, well, maybe it's bronchopneumonia or something. So that's why you do it, Susan? No, no reason. Okay. It is completely irrational. And I don't, it was, I mean, it was mainly Zitramax that first got picked up. And I'm not clear why that happened either. Okay. Colchicine. We got an up and we got it down. Let's have a conversation <laughs> back and forth. Why would you give okay. colchicine to a early pre-hospitalized person who does have COVID? Why? Because there have been two or three halfway decent studies suggesting that colchicine um, can cut the rate of deterioration to the point of needing hospitalization by about 20%. 20% is not extremely high, but it is still 20%. It's something. Lena? I have not seen those studies, and I do not believe that it's standard practice here. Okay. Inhaled fluoxamine. Fluvoxamine. Inhaled fluvoxamine. Okay. And um, outpatient. There are three drugs that are in that category that I said about colchicine. One of them is fluvoxamine, which is an antidepressant, and it is not inhaled, it's a pill. But, it, but that, that one has also two or three studies that are suggestive, and they claim um, 25% to 30% cut in the rate of deterioration. Um, and I, I'll, I should also say that, the, that there is a third drug in the same category, which is inhaled budesonide, which, caught, which is an asthma inhaler. And in high doses, that also has been shown about 20% decrease. And I personally, even though, you know, sort of on the principle that these are old drugs, we know what their complications are, they're not very seriously toxic. Um, and I personally prescribe, have for several people, prescribed the cocktail of all three, the fluvoxamine, the, the colchicine, and the inhaled, and, and the asthma inhaler, um, the, which is a corticosteroid. Um, and I, I actually have the question, since we have 20%, 20%, and 30%, that it is conceivable that the combination of these things could actually reach the kind of level that the molnupiravir, um, Merck's miracle drug or non-miracle drug is, which is only a 50% decrease in the risk of, of, um, of deterioration. 
Okay, there's another drug. I don't even know how to pronounce this one. Budicinide? Yeah, yeah, Is yeah. That, that's that's the asthma. Drug for outpatient use? Yeah, cortis a cortisone inhaler. Yeah. Anticoagulation for somebody. We know that COVID makes blood vessels clot all over the place, but in an outpatient basis, anticoagulated? No way. Got it. <laughs> Steroids in an outpatient basis. Down, Absolutely down. not. Camel steroids stones. make steroids increase the risk of mortality in yeah. people who aren't Down in the because hospital. Because it's likely and... to kill somebody. Both of those yep. things. If you can't watch them carefully, this is these are situations in which taking something is worse than taking nothing. In that situation, that's what I would see him there. Again, we're just talking about outpatients now. If you're not sick enough to be in a hospital in a developed country that has hospitalization available, etc. Camostat. What is that? Camostat is a protease, an oral protease inhibitor, which was developed, of all things, for chronic pancreatitis. Why it would treat chronic pancreatitis, I have no idea. But it, there has been some very slight suggestive evidence that it could be helpful both for outpatients and for inpatients, and it's currently being trialed in double-blind placebo-controlled studies, both in outpatients and in inpatients. Are some but people actually giving remdesivir in an outpatient basis? Yeah. Remdesivir has been studied in outpatients, and it, this is something that actually makes sense because we all, as we all, we all know, all antivirals work better if they're given earlier. And remdesivir doesn't do very much in hospitalized patients, um, but the hope is that it would work better in non-hospitalized patients, and in fact, it doesn't. It, it, sorry, and in fact, it does. In, that, in the study that was done giving it to people who were, again, high risk and with early COVID, it cut the risk of hospitalization by 87%. This is huge. But those people have to go into, their, into a, into a hospital-like setting and get an intravenous infusion for three days in a row. I don't think that this is going to catch on. Okay, we're still at home. Uh, the patient is symptomatic, has been diagnosed with a PCR test, is mm -hmm. moving along, may have been given any of these things. You never know what the docs may have given them in various places, but now they're not feeling well. They're feeling worse, and they're having a little trouble breathing, uh, have, have some fever going with it. You're monitoring your own situation at home, communicating with your doctor, perhaps by video, perhaps by phone, perhaps by email, whatever. At what respiratory rate or blood oxygen saturation should you, the patient, actively seek hospitalization? Well, I'm glad, first of all, that you mentioned oxygen saturation because probably the, one of the very most important things that, a, that an outpatient with COVID can do is to buy a saturometer, which costs almost nothing, and check it regularly, even if they're feeling quite well. Um, Blood, the saturation level of 93% is generally considered to be the cut point. If you're below 93%, you should definitely be going to the hospital. But there, the criteria for going to the hospital is just being sick, really. And I think that that is something, if you are getting worse in any way, you should be consulting with your primary care um, provider 
and making the decision together about whether to go to the hospital. I mean, there are many other things other than oxygen saturation. You know, you're getting chest pain. You're getting lethargic. You're getting, you know, the people around you have noticed that you're a little bit confused. There are all kinds of things that are a signal that you're in an emergent situation and need to seek the possibility of hospital care. Okay, Dr. Wynn, we're so still I think not that in the hospital. you have any disagreements with, with Susan? No, I actually completely agree with her that I think this is really about the clinical judgment for the individual, and it's going to vary so much also depending on the person's underlying condition. I mean, somebody, for example, who's older with chronic renal disease and COPD and heart problems, something not, I mean, a small cold, right, could really tip them over the edge to the point that they need to be hospitalized. Somebody else who may actually live at a pretty low level for oxygen for 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 oxygenation because maybe they have baseline COPD, they could I mean they might not it they it might look like they have a low pulse ox but you know it's I think in our clinical judgment it's always about the patient and not just about the numbers so I, I totally agree. Okay, so uh, we've agreed that uh, hospitalization discussion is beyond the scope of this presentation and also the issue of ICUs when to use them how to use them etc out of that. But let's not off the table is appropriate drugs to be used for inpatients specifically. Obviously, it could be a whole bunch of things depending upon what happens to the patient. But specifically, thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs neutral or comments. Oxygen? (laughs) I'd say we don't say we much on that one. That's the biggest one. (laughs) Anticoagulants in the hospital? Okay. Uh, Dexamethasone. I have a comment about dexamethasone, please. Which is dexamethasone is the best drug that we have for this disease. It is the only drug that has been shown unequivocally to save lives. But what I want to say is that what that means actually is that without dexamethasone, 40% of people on respirators die. With dexamethasone, 30% of people on respirators die. In other words, this is not a miracle drug. We've already discussed remdesivir, and during hospitalization, there are many times that could be useful. Interferon beta? Nope. Uh, Tokilizumab? Nope. Okay, let's get over that now. We're not going to talk about ventilators. We're not going to talk about that, and I'm not going to ask you about it, but I will tell you, and I'll tell you, the audience, that my advanced directive says if I can't breathe well enough with positive pressure oxygen or whatever, I don't want a ventilator. No. That's my view. I'm not going to ask you to commit yourself to a position on that. Let's switch gears. Let's move from uh, that to prevention. Okay, we're about, we're a little more than half use of our time, so we're moving along really good, but we'll have to continue to move well. With the airborne Delta variant, what indeed is distancing? I mean, we were taught six feet. Does that apply at all with Delta? 
Yeah, I mean, it's. I'll, I'll start in. Um, curious what Dr. Levenstein says about this. I mean, six feet was always a rule of thumb, as in, I, I, you know, it's not like you're taking on a ruler and you're like, if I'm four feet and a half, I'm definitely going to get COVID. Versus if I'm six and a half feet, I'm not going to get COVID. Right? It was always a rule of thumb. And if something is more contagious, it does mean that those activities that we thought were relatively safe before now there's a higher risk associated. And we do know, as you said. Um, that um, that COVID is also airborne, that it's not just these droplets that we can see, but it's also aerosolized. Um, and so there have definitely been cases, including this one that was in the CDC MMWR um, in the CDC publication about the one teacher in Marin County near all of you who was unvaccinated, not wearing a mask, um, went to class while symptomatic, read to her class, and the class of 24 students, 12 out of the 24 unvaccinated elementary age students got COVID. The, the predominance was definitely the people who were closer to the teacher, but there were students in the way back who also got COVID as well. And so I think what that tells me is the, it really matters. If, obviously, if somebody should not be around others, if they're symptomatic, actively symptomatic, obviously they should be masked when indoors um, and also vaccination matters to, a lot too. But I think it does tell us that distance still plays a role. And I think, I mean, my actually biggest takeaway when it comes to prevention is that ventilation and being outdoors matters so much. That is the single most important thing. I mean, I have two little kids who are unvaccinated, who are under five. And so even with the vaccines for children, are still not going to be vaccinated yet. We are very comfortable. Yesterday was Halloween. We just went to do trick-or-treating with other families. We watched an outdoor movie with other families. We had, you know, we hung out near a bonfire outdoors with others. And I think being outdoors um, will is the best thing rather than counting exactly what distance you are indoors. What are your reactions to this notion that, well, as long as we're outdoors, we can put 100,000 people in one football stadium with no masks and no proof of vaccination required. Are those not potential super spreader events? And if they are, why hasn't it happened? We're halfway through football season, and a lot of places in our country, there have been 100,000 people, many different places, and yet you watch the numbers in those, and the states where that's been going on the most, their, their numbers are going down. At the moment, the states that are doing that have lower per 100,000 per day diagnoses than this, my state, California, which has been much more stringent on that. I don't understand this at all. I really don't. Well, I have one, one comment. I mean, I agree with everything Dr. Wen said, um, but the... One thing, one place where this issue was studied very, very thoroughly was with the demonstrations, with the Black Lives Matter demonstrations last, last um, spring and summer. And they looked very carefully at, at the possibility that these would have been super spreader events, and nothing came out of it. Despite the fact that you had people who were outdoors, many of them, you know, they were more masked than, 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 than one might have expected, but still they were yelling, they were screaming, they were chanting, they were singing, they were doing all of this, and there were many of them, many of them together, and there was virtually no evidence anywhere of people pass, of, of these being sources of, of COVID infection. So that being outdoors is really enormously 
enormous. Enor- I, I'm, I'm surprised that there has been no evidence of spreading in the football stadiums. I mean, in Italy, you can't walk into a stadium without having a green pass, which shows that you're either okay, vaccinated let, or let, you're recently recovered. Let's leave that one alone now. Let's move ahead. We've got to move ahead. Okay. Let's talk okay. about vaccines. I'm going to name some vaccines, and I'm looking for a thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs neutral, or you want a comment you want to make on these vaccines. Hey, George, can, can I, sorry, can I just make a, a recommendation? Because I don't know. You uh, just, want, Dr. Wayne, I wouldn't <laughs> stop you. Just in terms of time, I am only going to comment on Pfizer, Moderna, and J&J. I'm not going to have any comment on the others. And so I, I don't know if that would save you a thumbs up or thumbs down. Um, but I can't, I just, I You can always withdraw whatever. But Susan, do you have any conflict? <laughs> no, I'll be yeah, happy to go to go through the others. Okay. I, I'll, I'll have quick comments like on I think all of the others, but okay. I'll be very, I'll be as quick as Pfizer, I can. Pfizer is Pfizer a good vaccine? Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. I think Pfizer, Moderna, and J and J, the vaccines authorized in the U.S. are are great. J and J Janssen. Uh, Dr. Wen already indicated she took that one as her first one. I read that in the Post, didn't I? That's exactly right. So I was in the clinical had, trial. You had, a, you had a booster. I did. And actually, I hope we can talk about boosters as well, because I really strong. I think that's what a lot of people have questions about. But I strongly believe that at some point, pretty soon, everybody is going to need a booster. Um, yeah. Definitely people who got the J&J vaccine need a second dose of okay. something. A- they don't need to get the second chain. AstraZeneca vaccine. Any comments, anybody? Thumb up or thumb down? Yeah, that's that's mine. My good friend in London is explaining what's been going on in the U.K., in a lot of ways, but one of which is he said AstraZeneca is what they mostly use, and the the fall off on antibodies is very rapid and very serious. We have to move ahead. Uh, one no quick facts. one quick mention yeah. of p- something that most that not everybody knows about AstraZeneca, which is that unique among the vaccines, it does not protect at all against asymptomatic infection. Ooh, okay. I apologize to the audience that we're taking on way more than we can chew here, but we're doing the best we can with it. Each uh, vaccines alone is an hour easily, but we're doing what we can to educate. When it's clear cut, we'll say when it's not. Well, we'll do that. Novavax. Who wants to say? We've known that we've known since February that it was 90 percent effective. Where is it? I have a That's son who was on a clinical trial for Novavax. He said both of them, and so far he's okay, but it's still not even approved, not even uh, emergency use authorization. Sinovac. Sinovac is the worst of the vaccines. It admits to being 50%. She said this, only she used words to say it. Sorry. <laughs> Sinopharm. <laughs> Sinopharm claims to be 79% effective, but both of those two Chinese vaccines are probably contribute, have probably contributed to serious outbreaks in many countries worldwide. Clover's new vaccine in China doesn't even have a name. It says 79% again, but who knows? We know nothing except the press release. Sputnik V. Sput- Sputnik... Um, Sputnik's supposed 91% or 92% efficacy is very odd-looking in various ways, and the Russians have refused to give out the raw data, which has been requested multiple times by people. 
Um, and there are also problems with quality control that have been found by factory inspections um, by the WHO and also by several countries that observed that what they received was so far from what they were supposed to get that they actually sent back batches of vaccine to Russia. Now, I find it difficult to figure out what's going on in Russia, but then again, so does everybody. Their numbers have been going up, while our numbers have been going down. They've crisscrossed, <clears throat> and yet, from what I read, there's more vaccine hesitancy. You can, that's a nice way to say people refuse vaccination in, in Russia than there is here. They say, oh, it's going to take over your soul and kill you and all those crazy. But they have the same problems in Russia that they have here, you know? Yeah. Susan? I happen to have traveled in the Soviet Union during its last year. And there I had the dubious privilege of meeting people for the first time and the only time in my life who had not vaccinated their children at all, including against tetanus and polio. So this is a very deep-rooted, very old prejudice against vaccination. And the and in fact, they let me see, it's 30, 33% of the population is vaccinated now in, in Russia. Okay, That's well, compared well, to well, 58% in the United States, which is still pretty lousy. Let's move this the best we can to would either of you be willing to commit to answer the question as to what percent of a total population within a given geographic region must be vaccinated of the total population fully vaccinated with a vaccine that works, that we think works, one of the four or five that we think really does work, for a region to escape the labyrinth, assuming no new variants. How many? George, can I make two comments? Um, one is a practical one based on what we were talking about before with the global vaccines. And so um, I think the where maybe um, viewers might, might be interested is what happens if they have a relative or a visitor or something from another country who got one of the other vaccines and now they're in the, the, in the U.S. and now they're, you know, maybe they're cured, maybe they're a student or something else. Are they, are, are, do they want, should they be getting another vaccine? Should they be getting one of our vaccines? I believe yes. I believe that even if they've been fully vaccinated with with Sinovac or something else, that once they come into the U.S., if they're especially if they're going to be staying here for any length of time, they should get, they should presume that they're not vaccinated at all and that they should start over with our vaccine series here. A lot of colleges and universities actually have that policy that they don't count as being vaccinated unless they have one of the FDA-authorized vaccines. So let's, so that's, that's the first part. The second part is, if I may, I don't, I mean, I don't know that I can offer a, a percentage. I, I would hope that something like 80% or something that we can actually escape the, the labyrinth, as you said. But I wrote a Washington Post article a few weeks ago about how we may not be able to get there through vaccination. As in, I'm not sure that we can get to a high enough level through vaccination that we're able to suppress the level of COVID infection in this country. I'm just not optimistic that we can get to an 80% in uh, in in, in the U.S. And certainly not, I mean, maybe certain communities can, maybe San Francisco can, um, but I don't know that that's, that is a reasonable goal for most communities across the country. That said, I think there's still a way for us to live with COVID and to turn COVID from what is currently this existential emergency into a disease that we can live with. And that is if we have vaccines for younger children, which we're on the, which we're on the cusp of, if we have um, oral treatments for COVID-19, like Moni 
remipiravir, fluvoxamine, some of the others that, that were mentioned. And then, as we were talking about earlier, widespread testing. I think if we have testing, even if we don't get to a high enough vaccination rate, I think we can actually, to, in your words, George, escape the labyrinth. Okay, let's contextualize this thing a little bit. <clears throat> uh, if at some point uh, different countries go endemic and is no longer epidemic in a given geographic region, uh, in the United States we tolerate 90 deaths a day as a cost of using motor vehicles. We tolerate uh, 100 deaths a day from allowing the guns and ammunition industry to sell guns to our people. We tolerate 1,300 premature American deaths a day for the cost of doing business for a legal tobacco industry. We tolerate five deaths a day for a construction industry to build buildings and 200 deaths per day from drug overdose. Would a 1,000 daily COVID deaths become yet another tolerated cost of doing business in the United States? Or is that too much? Or is that too little? New Zealand said, we're going to get rid of this thing. There isn't going to be any COVID here. And I, I applauded and applauded and applauded, and it didn't work. So endemic there, what, give me a number. What number would you be comfortable in the United States of deaths from COVID per day, steady state? Are you willing to do that? I'll tell I you what I, I, I thought about this. Um, two months ago, Anthony Fauci said that he thought that things would be okay, it would be acceptable if there were less than 10,000 cases a day in the United States. Mm-hmm. And given the case fatality rate, that adds up, as I calculate it, to about 160 deaths a day. And that is comparable to... Um, it's a little bit more than the number of deaths per day from pneumonia. And I think that that uh, that is the order of magnitude that one should be heading for. In Italy, at this particular moment, over the last two weeks, even though things have been getting somewhat worse in Italy, um, there are still, the rate right now is equivalent in the United States, would be equivalent to 230 deaths a day in the United States, which is not that far from that 160. And I, I, I like that 160. Uh, Dr. Wynn, are you willing to pick one or two states or one or two countries that you think are examples of the right way to do something or the wrong way to do something and name those? And I don't care which, but glaring examples of, oh, my God, we shouldn't have done that. Or, yeah, that's that's what we should have done. And states and times, because we've been two years almost in this thing. And New York had terrible death rates, but that was very early. We really didn't know even to prone people at that point in time. Peru has the worst death rates in the world by far, like double the number per 100,000 population over time, the entire time. And yet uh, so much goes into whether somebody's going to die or not. So what? Uh, pick some examples, good or bad. States, cities, municipalities, counties, countries, whatever you wish. One, two, or three that you think stand out. 
Well, I'll tell you the two countries that I think have done a um, a very good job and continue to. One is Israel. From the very beginning, they have been a leader on a number of things, including data collection. I mean, the, all the data that we have on, for example, on the need for boosters is coming from Israel. They have very compelling data there that show that we do need boosters, that there's waning immunity. And I think it's some kind of strange American exceptionalism when many people here, including prominent scientists, continue to say that we don't need boosters based on American data, that is, that lags far behind when it comes to quality and, and time compared to, to Israeli data. So that's, anyway, that's a different story. But Israel um, was also very early with their Green Pass system, which I know that Dr. Levenstein talked about. But when I think about the U.S. cities that have now taken this on, San Francisco, Seattle, New York City, other places that are, lo- that are now instituting some kind of proof of vaccination in order to access public spaces. I think that is what we need. Somebody who is vaccinated is six times less likely to be infected compared to somebody who is unvaccinated, 11 to 12 times less likely to die. But the less likely to be infected is key because if I have to be in a shared space with someone, I would rather that that person is six times less likely to be infected compared to to, uh, to somebody else. And so, uh, again, I think Israel, but also those, those other cities that I named are good examples, including of this Green Pass system. One more that I want to cite is Germany and what they have done. Um, there was just a great Atlantic article by Yasha Monk um, that talked about how Germany has instituted a number of protocols coming into this pandemic winter that actually don't do that much when it comes to impeding people's lives, but actually really help to prepare. So, for example, they have said no more cloth masks. Um, the government has basically issued these very good equivalent to KN95s or, or KF94 masks to people and said you should be wearing those when in indoor spaces. Again, not a big deal when it comes to just replacing one mask versus another, but something that could have a major impact. And also, they've really done well with, with, with rapid testing, too. Dr. Levenstein, I'm sure you want to talk about Italy. <laughs> I want to talk. I want to talk first for just a second about the UK because there's a, there's something very specific to say about it, which is that bad policy. In other words, they threw out all of their, virtually all of their restrictions in the middle of July, and they had a huge, terrible, ongoing, um, epidemic surge. And they're refusing to do anything about it, basically. It, you know, it's a very bizarre thing. I always thought the English were sensible. And the point <laughs> is that there's a specific lesson, which is bad policy and bad behavior can trump the, availabil- the widespread availability of testing and the widespread vaccination. That's about the U.K. And I, um, I about Italy, I want to very quickly, yeah. if you'll allow me, make three, three points for the three, to- for the three waves of the... Of, of COVID that have hit in Italy. The first one is from the first wave, and the, 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 the lesson there is that lockdowns work because they really got out of it very well with a, with a very proper lockdown. The second, wave, the second lesson is from the second wave, which was at the end of summer 2020, when all of the young people of Italy had gone gallivanting around the world and brought back COVID. And the lesson is that when young people get COVID, they pass it to their elders. Mm -hmm. And that is why they had such a terrible, terrible wave, so many deaths over the winter of, over the last winter a year ago. That's number two. 
And my, my, my third lesson is from the third wave, which is right now when Italy is having, like every place else in the world, is having a delta wave, a delta surge, but it's much less than in most places. And by the way, it's less, it's less than half as bad as in Germany. I don't know what's happening in Germany. I don't understand. They're doing something wrong there right now. But in any case, Italy is doing something right, and what it is is that national... National character is not destiny. In other words, <laughs> Italians are notoriously transgressive, anarchic. They don't follow the rules. They don't follow laws. They will, you know, they they won't. They 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 drive wrong. They do they do ev- they disobey everything. That is what they do. But with this particular situation, with lockdowns, with masks, and so on, they have been incredibly obedient. And, they, and they've done a very good job with it. And by the way, in Italy, it's by now nearly standard to use the KN95 masks. Okay, you do Hamm- see some surgical masks, but you see almost no, almost no, no um, um, cloth masks. I had been using cloth masks personally for a number of months. Um, but with the Delta surge and with my getting to be six or eight months out from my own vaccination... Um, I have gone over completely to the, you know, to the white KN95s. Thank you very much, Dr. Wen, Dr. Levenstein. Mr. Hammond has joined us on stage here. Uh, we, I feel like we're just getting going good. But we are just getting we're going. We're just about over. <laughs> uh, I want to apologize in particular for not viewing anything about long COVID. Mm-hmm. But I will invite all the people who might be watching this or listening to this to check out Dr. Wen on CNN, mm-hmm. who's a regular medical analyst for them and her columns in the Washington Post. And if you're not already registered for Dr. Levenstein's stethoscope on Rome, the blog to get on her mailing list about once a week. That's the best place. It's all right there. And you can mostly believe it. Occasionally, I have found a fault with it. And and she's come back to me and said, no, I did that four months ago. You missed it. So thank you very much for being with us. And we'll kick it back to Mr. Hammond and our live audience, audience. remote audience. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you very much. And that was a very clever thumbs up, thumbs down way to do something. A lot of information very quickly. Uh, And I'm sure the audience really appreciated that. And, And somebody commented on that. Um, we have several questions that have come from our audience, and we'll try to get all of them in before we put this to an end. Um, so the first question is from Warren. Uh, why aren't at-home tests free and widely available? President Biden announced in his September address his prioritization of at-home testing and said he would use the Defense Production Act to boost availability. But does anybody know what happened? That is the question. The Washington Post actually did a, um, a, a, a really good analysis a couple of days ago on exactly this question. Mm-hmm. I mean, there isn't an easy answer to this, except for what I wish were the case, right? What I wish, and I've written a number of columns about this, and I think a lot of people have been on, on the case, on this case as well, is 
what if the Biden administration put as much effort into testing as they did on vaccines? Mm-hmm. It seems like they put all their eggs in the vaccine basket, which, hey, I agree with. I think vaccines are our best and, and our best answer, our best solution out of this. But at the same time, we have to acknowledge that we are entering a phase of the pandemic where we have to live with COVID. And to live with COVID, testing is essential, especially because we know that if you're vaccinated, you could still transmit COVID to others. Even if you are very well protected yourself, you could transmit it to others. And so, you know, when we look at rapid testing in my area, I just went to get a whole bunch of rapid tests in preparation for for Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. And one of the pharmacies near me was selling them for $59.99 for two tests. Mm -hmm. That's not acceptable. I found I eventually found another pharmacy that sold them for about $23, $24 for for two tests, Mm -hmm. which, again, puts it put testing out of the reach of of many Americans. And I think Mm -hmm. that is it's a really big problem. The Biden administration is trying to get tests to seven dollars. But um, it is nowhere near that amount for individuals or businesses or schools or other settings that currently have to have very restrictive measures or are just throwing up their hands and throwing caution into the wind because of lack of testing. Yeah, it does seem like this is a perfect example of when the government should make something free, uh, no matter how expensive it is, if it's really an effective way to, to move forward. Because, as you said, if, you, if only the rich people... Uh, who, who are going to pay $60 for who tests are the ones who are doing it, it's not going to really be helpful at all. Um, and certainly other people aren't going to be spending daily $60 or, or, or three times a week $60 to, to take the test. Um, Warren also asks, how about daily saline nasal rinses? Is that of any use? <laughs> Susan is, uh, is giving you a rolling eye. Yeah, here. I think that was the answer. Um, Actually, I use saline daily mist every day. It's of great use, but not for not for COVID. Not for COVID. Okay, uh, Susan Kroll asks. <laughs> so this goes in with the vitamin C and the zinc and the vitamin D. I, th- I thought that was a great. It's not going to kill you, but it uh, might not help you in this case. Um, and, and I loved your comment, George, that you said, you said a lot of people do things and they believe in it and it helps for some reason and we don't know. So <laughs> yeah. that's all right. So Susan Kroll, as long as it's not hurting you, uh, Susan Kroll asks, I am vaccinated and a huge supporter of vaccines for adults. What's your current thinking about the vaccines for the five to 11 year olds? Um, are you are you in favor of this or against it? Or maybe that's a good question. I am strongly in favor of it. I am very excited about the CDC meeting that's going to take place tomorrow. And so we are now two out of four steps into this process. The FDA advisors met last week. The FDA officially granted emergency use authorization for the vaccine for 5 to 11-year-olds on Friday. The CDC advisors are meeting tomorrow. I would expect that they'll come out with a favorable recommendation, just given um, the data that we've seen thus far. And um, I think this will give a huge amount of relief to so many parents who have been living as, as if we are unvaccinated ourselves, as in we're taking so many precautions because of our children. And I think one of the false and extremely pervasive and harmful narratives that's been out there is that children somehow are not affected by COVID, that somehow young ch- younger children are immune to COVID, which is not true. When you look at the numbers in this 5 to 11-year-old group, there have been more than 1.9 million infections, more than 8,600 hospitalizations, more than 140 children in this age group have died. It is now the sixth 
sixth or seventh leading cause of death in this age group, COVID. They came from nowhere to be this. And mm -hmm. I think one of the fallacies has been comparing the rate of, of illness from uh, to, uh, in adults to children. Mm -hmm. If you just have an illness that only affected children with the numbers that I'm describing, where potentially thousands and thousands of kids could have long-haul COVID, um, uh, Dr. Lundberg, to your previous point, I mean, we don't even know the long-term impacts on our children. If you just have an illness that caused that type of harm, mm -hmm. imagine how much angst there would be by parents and grandparents and people who care about children. And so I'm very, um, the short answer, of course, is that I'm very optimistic about the vaccine for children, not because of the societal benefit. I mean, yes, I think there's going to be a societal benefit in terms of reducing transmission and getting us closer to that, that immunity number that we were talking about. But the main reason is actually protecting our children. Uh, next question is from Gail Wong. I would be interested in further investigation of inhaled vaccines. Investigations are underway that inhaled form may be more effective at prevention and transmission. Does anybody know anything about that? There have been two or three vaccines that people have, have set up as possibilities to be inhaled vaccines. But so far, the, the few studies that have been done have not come through. They haven't gotten to the point of phase three studies. Mm -hmm. um, it, it seems like a nice idea to add mucosal immunity mm -hmm. to the to the to the to the package, but it you know it's still far away. I think that more reasonable and more op, I would be more optimistic about the possibility of finding a universal vaccine. In other words, a vaccine right. that will attack all future possible variants. Of and there course. are various people who are working on that. Yeah, I like the idea of inhaled vaccines because it's a respiratory virus. It takes hold in the upper respiratory tract, not lower down. Mm. And if you inhaled and got a lot of antibody reaction, one form or another, uh, in the nasal passages, you might be able to, to ward it off more easily. And there, there, there are uh, labs doing this, but it's not yet to the point of clinical use. Okay. Great. Great update. Um, David Grant asks, if the vaccine is safe, why are we attempting to sell it to the public under the emergency use authorization? Well, actually, Pfizer, um, a, a, there is now full approval for the Pfizer vaccine mm -hmm. here in, in the U.S. But the emergency use authorization, the reason is that this is a pandemic. I mean, you can't, again, back to the perfect cannot be the enemy of the good. You can't collect years of data when people are dying in the numbers that we've been hearing about. I mean, at the peak of the pandemic, we were losing more than 2,000 people every day. We've already had over 740,000 people dying in the U.S. And so I think it's not a matter of selling it to people. I think it's a matter of saying this is what we need in order to protect ourselves and our loved ones. Yeah, we're way past the point of thinking it's just a bad flu. Um, in terms of the statistics and, and in terms of how, how it's affected things. Um, question from Michael Millinson. How long does the booster of Moderna take uh, to take effect? Two weeks or less? Is it like the original? I mean, when are you safe after you've taken the booster? It's, it's a slightly different Moderna, question because you're already safe. It's just it's just up in the in, uh, increasing the amount of safety, right? In Israel, what they were looking at was, of course, Pfizer, which is what, you know, that we have much more data about mm -hmm. Pfizer than we Pfizer boosters. And what they are seeing is good protection after 12 days. Okay. That's all I can say. Don't know whether it might be or might, might be earlier or whether it's different for Moderna, which it could be because of the higher dose of, of RNA. Mm -hmm. But but I think that we have to we have to figure that those 12 days is probably the right amount. 
I tried to get the same answer because my wife and I had our boosters, uh-huh. Moderna, less than two weeks ago. I wondered, when is it going to kick in? <laughs> I couldn't find it. I no, couldn't no find answer. an answer. There may be one, but I don't know what it is. I think you should consider it to be 14 days in the same way that that you consider it to be with with the primary series, that you have maximal protection at that point. Mm. Um, But also recognizing that, and I've had a lot of people ask this question too, but more in the sense of, can I do X after X period, after Y period of time, right? Mm. So it's, can I get together with friends again for dinner? Can I go to restaurants again after this period? And I think just remembering that the booster will increase your immune protection, but it's still not bulletproof armor. So Mm. um, especially if if you are a more vulnerable person with chronic medical diseases and immunosuppression, et cetera, you should still take additional precautions even after receiving the booster. However, I do also agree with the idea of timing the booster um, in concert with something. For example, if you if you have an overseas trip planned, if you are going to an indoor wedding that's particularly higher risk, getting the booster dose at least 14 days before you go to that event will give you that added level of protection too. I think the importance in what you said, uh, it's not an armor, you know, that, that's going to protect you completely, but neither it has the original two vaccines gone down to zero either. No, it, it, it's lost maybe some it, of its effectiveness, good. but it, it's, still, it's still pretty high protection. So it's an increase of safety, not that you've lost all the protection from the original one. Not at all. Yeah. Um, and Arnav Gupta asks, uh, why did you compare the vaccines in the U.S. with those outside? Um, because we have a worldwide audience at the Commonwealth Club. You've got to deal with it that way. That's there right. is a big world here, and we're all interdependent on things. Pandemics, that's everywhere. Right. And as long as there's this virus around in any of those places, it's a problem for all of us. Absolutely. And, and it also, again, we've talked about making the government making things free. Um, the rich countries, having developed this and moved it along faster, I mean, it's to their advantage, obviously, to uh, give it out as, as widely as it can be spread around the world. So, um, George, final thoughts? Final thoughts? Uh, w- uh, we're in deep doo-doo still. <laughs> and I didn't learn today how to get out of it. All right. So we are in, when we say, where are we in it? That's your answer. Yep. Um, and, and how do we escape? Um, not just a shower will do it, uh, right? So... Uh, how about Leanna, Susan? You want to uh, go ahead, Leanna? I know that you're you're on a tight time schedule. Go ahead. Well, Where are we in it? And how, how do we escape? Go ahead, Leanna. <laughs> no, I was going to say only because I have two little people who could burst in and yeah, might exactly. make a surprise appearance um, to, in, in here. But um, you turn into a pumpkin at a certain time when your sitter <laughs> is going to come home um, in two minutes, in fact. But um, exactly. I, I actually want to give a more optimistic um, viewpoint here. Mm. I think that the end of the pandemic could be in sight if we define the end of the pandemic as not eradicating COVID, but learning how to live with it. I, I think we would all agree, or at least I think all of us in the panel would, would agree that we're not going to get rid of COVID anytime soon. There's no path to zero COVID anywhere. And so we need to figure out how to live with it. But I actually think that we know at this point how to live with COVID in a way that it's not this top of mind emergency all the time. But one of the key things that we have not gotten to, again, is this widespread daily testing. And I think we need to get there. But 
I, I don't think that we are so far from this point. I will want to give a prediction of spring of 2022 mm-hmm. for many things getting back to what we would consider to be some, some you know, pretty good pre-pandemic normal. Maybe we're still wearing masks in crowded settings. Maybe those who are very vulnerable still need to not participate in certain activities. But I think that we can get to some type of normal in spring of 2022. Thank you so much. And you were here last year, too. We really appreciate it, uh, your, your assistance. And I know that you have to go. Susan, what's your, your, your last word on where are we in it and how do we escape? Well, I have two things I want to say. One of them is optimistic. One of them is pessimistic. The optimistic one is that at this point, 49% of the people on this planet have had at least one dose of vaccine. Mm-hmm. And I find this to be absolutely astonishing. And it's promising. Obviously, there's a huge disparity between rich and poor countries. But the fact that half of the population of, of, of the world has been touched by a vaccine, I find promising in the capacity of the world to get out of this. Mm-hmm. The negative thing I want to say is that in the best, study, in, in the best studies that have been done, um, People who are relatively young, under 60 years old, and who had relatively mild COVID, never hospitalized, after six months, 78% of them are still fatigued. 75% of them still have exercise intolerance. And 55% of them say that they can't think straight. Mm -hmm. That's after six months. And there's still, and I just want to emphasize that long COVID is something very, very frequent and is going to be a very severe, very serious public health problem worldwide over the next period. One last question about that, Susan. What are the numbers of of people that have had those symptoms that you're defining as the symptoms that lead to long COVID at such high percentages? Are there a million people in the world like that? Are there 10 million people in the world like that? Do you have any idea? That, that, that qualify as something you know, that the, the basis of the 75, 50, and so on comes from? That, that, partic- that particular, that was one study, and that was an international study. And as I say, it looked at only people who were not hospitalized and who were under 60 and uh-huh. who were generally healthy. I mean, the, you know, this is not, people who were hospitalized have still higher rates mm-hmm. of being invalids at six months. And also after a year, after a year, uh, the, the best study that I've seen says that about half of the people who had outpatient, who had COVID, COVID as outpatients, about half of them still have some symptoms. Another extremely good reason. A million people have had this disease, mm-hmm. minimum. Yeah. Yeah. So you're talking about 1 million, 10 million. No, 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 no. It's much higher. Way yeah. higher. All right. Another yeah. good reason to get vaccinated if long COVID is that, that powerful. So thank you very much, uh, George, for bringing yet another uh, discussion and, and very efficiently a lot of information. That was excellent, really excellent. And thank you for joining us today at the Commonwealth Club. And so ends another event in uh, the 119th year of enlightened discussion at the Commonwealth Club. We'll see you again in another show. Thanks a lot for joining us. Join us November 19th at 6 p.m. Pacific time for a virtual fundraising gala and celebrate the leadership of women in science and medicine. Make a donation to the Commonwealth Club and support our critical mission to provide balanced civil dialogue on society's most challenging issues. Text CLUB2021 to 41444 to register and donate today. 
You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.